Hello, and welcome back to the Cave Escape Podcast. I'm Caleb Groves. And I'm Ashton Goolsby. And today, we're here to talk about fairy stories. We have with us, though, a uh, guest to help us with that. Uh, none other than, other than my uh, brother, Avery Goolsby. Hello. Who has uh, recently written his senior thesis on the art of, or just the tradition of fairy stories or fairy tales, or mm-hmm. we'll get into the terminology of that later right. but uh he has agreed to come with us today or technically we've actually come to him today yep. <laughs> <laughs> to talk uh, about senior thesis to break our long silence of for the ending of school for these many weeks yes <laughs> <laughs> so caleb now has a degree Woo-hoo. <laughs> and he's free from homework yes now he gets to give it to third graders yeah <laughs> <laughs> Uh. <laughs> I guess also I don't know if we mentioned that I was going to be a teacher I'll be a teacher at the school that Ashton is a teacher in the fall yes he will be, be third and I'll be fourth it's gonna be awesome we'll work together on that one yeah <laughs> so guess just let's go on and yeah. dive in I guess yeah <clears throat> so the first question I guess we should kind of get off started with is what is a fairy story so can you help us out with that one? Yes. Um, so the thing about defining a fairy story is um, that it's very hard to define a fairy story. In fact, um, Tolkien wrote an entire essay titled, you know, on fairy stories. And es- essentially he, he, he made the statement that it it's, it's not very easy to do. And honestly, it may not be, a, you, you may not be able to do it at all. Um, so, part part of the problem is there have been fairy stories written for basically as l- l- long back as you know we we know we you can easily trace the story of C- Cinderella back you know even before like the time of Christ. Um, so you know part of the problem is because there are so many fairy stories because they've been told in so many different ways and by so many different people is you f- you find one definition and it sounds more appealing than the other but you know the problem is the the problem that you're going to see is you have to try to fit every fairy tale into that bracket so when Tolkien attempted to define it as well as he could he even he split um the the stories of, by Beatrix Potter and Joel Chandler Harris you know the stories of Bray Rabbit and uh, Peter Rabbit he's put those into a different category titled beast fables um to and c- kind of separated them at, uh separated them from fairy stories um is they're they're, they're kind of related but they're not entirely related um and i i agree with him that you know Peter Rabbit and Bray Rabbit are not um, f- fairy stories, um, but I do not necessarily entirely agree with you know his um, the way he defines the Beast fables because especially in the case of the Brothers Grimm, a lot of you know their fairy tales are c- you kind of qualify as Beast fables, and then he's that makes it sound like he's saying that those aren't fairy tales, but they're in a book titled. Grimm's complete fairy tales, and so it 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 really it, it's just it's it's very hard to define. So what what Tolkien did and what he was mainly concerned with was you know kind of the structure of fairy tales, um, and so I think 
I, I think the main the the main thing that you have to understand about fairy tales is that they teach morals, and I think that's just kind of widely agreed upon by you know anybody that's ever tried to define fairy tales is that th- there is a moral somewhere in it. You know, Little Red Riding Hood teaches about you know not talking to strangers, uh, and you know Cinderella, Snow White, you learn to you know the importance of love or whatever. There, 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 <laughs> there there's gonna be a some sort of moral, at least one moral somewhere in that story that that's never really been disputed. Um, I think personally, and I've heard this argued before by various people, um, that part of the art of displaying those morals in fairy tales, which in contrast to other genres of literature, is that the moral is not stated word for word. It is implied between the lines of the story. So um, I think an example I used um, when writing my senior thesis was um, the Berenstain Bears. I said that uh, for all the love that I have for the Berenstain Bears, for you know all that I read them throughout my childhood, Mama and Papa usually told sister and brother that what they were doing was wrong or that they needed to do it like this. And so it, you are learning when you read those stories, but the difference is that they are, that they are being you as the reader are being told exactly what the moral is. Whereas in the fairy tales, it is a story, and through that story, you are shown why you should be brave, why you should be courageous, why you should not tell lies, why you should not talk to strangers. But it's never necessarily said in Little Red Riding Hood to not talk to strangers. You just learn through Little Red Riding Hood's mistakes that you should not talk to strangers. So uh, so it's not like, like Aesop's fables, where like, you have the tortoise and the hare, and at the end it ends and says, slow and steady wins the race, that would not be a fairy story. Yes, no. Um, the So fables and fairy stories are different. Those would be different, yes. Um, and then uh, another concern um, that Tolkien had was the happily ever after. He, he coined this word, he called it a eucatastrophe. It is the sudden turning of what seems an inescapable, you know, doom in the story. The the hero has no way out or the protagonist has no way out and then they are rescued often by some form of deus ex machina. Um and there there's a happily ever after and he he thought that it was very important. Um you know, no fairy tale is complete without it. Um now what I will add to that is that you you assume that means that the main character um, lives happily ever after. Now, the first thing you have to understand, and I'll probably have to talk more about this later, but it's too big of a tangent to get into right now, um, is that your protagonist of the fairy tale is not always the main character. So one example I will use is the death of the little hen. Um, the little hen is the protagonist of that story, but she is not the hero. In fact, she was probably you would probably consider her the villain. And in fact, she dies midway through the story. Um, And by the end of the story, everybody has died. But the joy that is the happily ever after is not for the death, for for the little hen. The happily ever after is for though the other people in the story who get to be rescued from the gluttony of the little hen. This gluttony killed the little hen, and the other characters in the story no, no longer have to put up with the little hen. 
Um, and then it, it is also for the reader who also gets to see this gluttonous protagonist meet her just reward. Um, now, in the cases of Snow White and Cinderella, it, it is that happily ever after that we usually think of where, you know, they get to run off with the prince and they get to live in a castle, have, you know, all the riches they could ever want, you know, true love and all of that. Um, but although that is what we usually think of when we talk about happily ever after, that is not always the case, especially in the cases of the Brothers Grimm, whose very names um, speak <laughs> for how a lot of their stories play out. It, it is often very grimful. <laughs> so if, if the point of it, so the point of it's not the happy ending? Um, the, the point, um, the point is there will be some sort of happiness at the ending. Someone somewhere will find happiness at the ending, but the point is not that the protagonist will find happiness. Now the hero will always find happiness, but also, even in the ca case of the fairy tale of the death of Little Hen, there is no hero. There's not really any hero in the story. In fact, pretty much every character in the story dies. So, why then? Why should we like, read these stories then? Because I mean, they. I, I, yeah, I guess just what? Why should we read these? Is, what? What is there in them? They're, they're fairly simple for the most part, aren't they? They're not like long novels or. Yes. And they're not true things that actually happened. So, I mean, why are... I mean, clearly, I mean, they've... You said Cinderella's been around since before the time of Christ. I mean, they've stuck around. Mm -hmm. What is it about them that it just kind of endures, that makes them worth reading? Um, I, th I think, and this is something that I did not get a, a lot of chance to talk about in my defense or uh, in my paper for, for my senior thesis... Um, but I, I really wanted to talk a lot a lot more about in my defense of my senior thesis. And I was actually, originally when I started, I wanted, this was really going to be the main talking point. I just, things changed along the way. But I think a v very strong, you know, draw to those stories for us as humans um, comes in that a lot of these elements from fairy tales, dragons and giants and fairies, whatever else, it it all, it, it's very, we we can see those those creatures in you know the Bible. Um, I I I think that um, the serpent in the garden was some form of a dragon, uh, namely uh, in Revelations uh, twenty, I think it's verse two. Um, the dragon or the serpent and Satan are referred to as a dragon, and I know I know they're referred to as a dragon uh, in other places in Revelations, and I'm sure in other books of the Bible as well. Um, in First Samuel, we read about David and Goliath, and so we know there were giants in the Bible. And I think um, part of what we find appealing about fairy tales is that possibly these these elements of fairy used to exist in the real world. And as we, as we have come further and further into this fallen world that we are now living in, we lost the connection with those creatures. Hmm. And so in stories where we read about morality and virtue, then we are also reading about creatures that used to be more connected with a more virtuous 
world, a more perfect world. Yeah, I, I liked that was actually how you closed your thesis. Uh, I liked you said the elements of the fairy tale world used to exist in the real world from biblical times, times closer to the perfect world of the Garden of Eden. Now, instead of meeting giants and dragons in the real world, mankind reads about them in fairy tales that remind them what a perfect world could look like. That I liked. I liked the way you closed that. The idea of like it. It calls back to mind the things closer to Eden. I, I like that. I, I also mm. noticed you you are referring to adults. It seems like so. Typically, we think of fairy tales and things as being for kids. Would you say that that's true? Um, so that is a another difficult question to answer. I really, I even even writing my paper, I flip flopped back and forth on this answer. And so th- the answer I came to was that they are meant for both children and adults. Um, so for example, um. One of the sources I used um, f- for my senior thesis defense was Hillsdale's College um, Classical Children's Literature course. It's a free online course on Hillsdale's website. Um, and so the name of that course, Classical Children's Literature, it, it, you know, like you you kind of look at that and you're like, okay, so if it's children's literature, why are we studying it at a college for you know adults or almost adults? Um, not you know five year olds or anything. And why are these adult men teaching this course? And so what we mean when we say children's literature, I I think it is more meant as literature that can be enjoyed by children. I don't think mm. anyone is going to d- dispute that a child is going to enjoy reading or watching Cinderella. But what people miss and what people do not understand is that the morals go way deeper than just the simple happily ever after Cinderella meets the prince and she gets to live happily ever after the moral of true love. It it goes way deeper than that. Um, You attended, um, I know Ashton, you you attended like Mr. Wilbur's lecture about fairy tales. Yeah. Were were you there for that back in the fall? Uh, Was that? I was not able to go to that. Yeah. Was that a collegium with student weekend or was that something different? That was no, something actually, different. Something different, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've you've heard him talk about fairy stories before, though, right? Yeah, like here and there, like pretty much every breathing second yeah. of his life, <laughs> right? <laughs> but um, just you know, listening to Mr. Wilbur, you know, talk about that for I don't even remember how long we were there, but the fact that an adult man can take that and pick it apart, you know, word by word, sentence by sentence, and we can spend, you know, multiple hours talking about these fairy tales means that there's a lot more depth to it Mm -hmm. than just the simple, cute little story that we might read our children when they go to bed at night. And there's almost definitely a lot more to them than what a child's brain is going to pick up on. It's like what, uh, also, the the guy who wrote that book that we were talking about earlier, the in the, the heart, heart of virtue, yeah, yeah. Who, um, what's his name? Vegan groin. Yeah, I'm I'm listening to a thing right now for um, training teacher training for school. Uh, I should be done with it, but I'm a couple days behind. <laughs> <laughs> but he it, that guy who wrote that book, he he's talking about the same stuff, and it's one of those two where he he 
he said, I used to teach a collegiate level course on this. So, I mean, there's got to be something. And he said he got it from listening to them with his kids and then reading to his grandkids. He's like, there's something that's got to be important in this. Mm-hmm. And he's, I believe he's Orthodox. But he was talking about, and I think his vision of it, given the tradition that he has to go with his faith, uh, he kept tying it back to that. And he, he even, multiple times he said, the Catholics read fairy stories well. The Catholics read fairy stories well. Hmm. So there's there's something about, I think, even, which I guess goes back to what you were saying about the tradition with the garden of tying it, yeah, tying fairy tales into tradition somehow. Yeah, I was even I was just listening on the way up here. I was listening to a podcast uh, where they're interviewing Joshua Gibbs about his book that just came out called uh, uh, "Loving What Lasts," I think. And it's basically about like he kind of divides like cultural artifacts into three categories: being common, uncommon, and mediocre. And he was like, the common ones are the ones that kind of like last for like a whole generation, maybe like 75 years. And like, everybody's like, this is a good thing. But after that, it kind of goes away. Mediocre is like super like fads. Um, pop so like culture. Pop culture. Yeah. They're there for like a week and then they're not, but then you have like the uncommon ones, which are things like paradise lost and the divine mm. comedy that just, they last forever because there's something about them or like the Goldberg variations is another thing that he listed. And they're, they're just, they're these things that are in tune with beauty in such a way that we can't stop looking at them mm-hmm. and we like, we'd never get tired of them as a people. And so they stay with us forever. And, and like, everybody just says that these things are good things. Yeah. And so I think fairy stories, I mean, clearly fairy stories have lasted again, like you're saying from before the time of Christ. And so they're pretty old. And so there's something about them that makes them last like that. And so it make, there's something about them that makes them worth studying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even just given the fact that they've lasted that long. It's it's history even at that point, but then Mm -hmm. they have to have lasted for some reason. Right. There's got to be something in them that's worth holding on to. So I wanted to go back to, we were talking about this being for adults and like, like adults can enjoy it, but it being something that is more intended for the children, I think is kind of what we said. But then there was this idea you quoted Chesterton from Orthodoxy, and I'm gonna have to flip through because I hate technology. I printed it off on paper so I could write on it. Uh, I've got the footnote somewhere, but you quoted you quoted Chesterton from Orthodoxy talking about childlike wonder. I think it was. Do you remember what quote that was? No. As I try to find it because that was actually recommended to me by a friend that I should incorporate that into my paper. <laughs> So shout out to Evan Schultz for doing that for me. <laughs> well, I, I can't find the p- the page exactly. I put page six, but that's not right. <clears throat> um, but do you, do you know what he means by having childlike wonder? Have you heard that phrase before? Yes. Um, I think it may may not be entirely the same thing, but um, Lewis Carroll was very concerned with childhood innocence. Would you say that's roughly along the same lines as what childhood wonder is. Um, I think it's a little bit different. The way out, it, you've heard that phrase before, right? Yeah. The, correct me if I'm wrong. The phrase, the way I understood it was this idea of, like, if you give a kid a story, they're going to want to just read it again. Because to them, 
it's just as good the second time. Mm-hmm. And so, and this may be the Chesterton idea that this came from. A lot of people talk about this, but the idea of he said God having this sense of childlike wonder where the sun, the sun rises and then it sets, and he says, "Do it again," and so it does it again the next day. So learning mm-hmm. to have this, this just excitement. I guess would be a word for it. Excitement like a child, where a child just sees something and is like, that's yeah. amazing. I want to do it again. Mm-hmm. That was fun a second time. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. So that that's how I understood it. Yeah. Would you say that there's something of that in like fairy stories? That they encourage that kind of repetition? Um, In that they're told over and over again? Yeah. Um, Or like the themes even. I mean, I also think of when I think childlike wonder, I think of a kid going outside and then playing for hours with sticks and rocks. Yeah, yeah. They, they like, find like, beauty just like in finding, everything. Yeah, just find like finding wonder, wondering in such like simple and mundane things because there is wonder and beauty in those things. Yeah. But as adults, we tend to kind of forget that and not wonder in those things. Yeah. So that would be because um, I I talked a little bit about. Um, uh, in my senior thesis, I talked a little bit about the difference between childlike and childish. Um, that would that yeah. would fall more in the lines of childlike. Yeah, I think that was more yeah. of what I was yes. getting at. I couldn't remember exactly. You, yeah, that's um, what the phrasing was in your paper. Yeah. So um, the childlikeness is more that, yeah, ch- childlike wonder, the childhood innocence, the, you know, put it simply, the admirable qualities of childhood um and then you, you you have the childish qualities like you know throwing tantrums when you don't get your way or anything <laughs> like that 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 is not an admirable quality um but you know being able to watch you know as, as a child i watched the fox and the hound i watched peter pan i watched it over and over again mm-hmm. i would read the same berenstain bear stories over and over again um and then just you know being able to go outside and you know play with sticks and rocks and you know you'll be able to find joy in that find joy in the little things in life that is an admirable quality and um have we have we talked about the virtues yet um no, no we know. didn't um do we want to talk about that now or? sure, sure go um so the the seven virtues um they're split up into two categories the first four are the cardinal virtues um, and I'm pulling this from Mere Christianity. Um, there's not a specific chapter because he splits it up into several different chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first cardinal virtues are just recognized by all of society. Any, you know, really anyone you pass on the streets will you know kind of agree that these are virtues. And so the cardinal virtues are prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude. Um, and then the theological ones are namely recognized by Christians. They are love also called charity and then you know faith and hope and obviously i cannot go into as much detail as i want or as much detail as c.s lewis went into but um this falls in line with what he talks about when he talks about prudence um i think he cites um the verse uh, what is it um to be as harmless as doves but as wise as serpents yeah mm-hmm. um and so he he talks about you know when when you think of you know prudence you don't really think of you know children because you know they're often you get those terms of childlike and childish confused but he says no 
children often show prudence what they do. They often, you know, show a lot of care and put a lot of care into what they're doing. And, and so, you know, it, it falls in line with the, uh, in the realms of prudence. Um, but, um, the, the whole, the whole thing with prudence is, you know, be as harmless as doves. And that's more of, falls in line with childlikeness, but then you also have to be, you know, as wise as serpents. And that's where, um, you know, adulthood comes in. So you can't just be childlike all the time. Um, you, you have to have an, ad I think this is a direct quote from your Christianity. You, God wants a, you know, child's heart, but an adult's brain. Um, mm -hmm. and that doesn't yeah. mean you have to have just like a certain IQ to get into heaven. It means that you need to, you know, show as much wisdom as you are able to. Um, it, it doesn't mean he's only going to let, you know, Harvard graduates into heaven. Um, but... Well, it's like he says, suffer not, or uh, prevent not the little children. I'm blanking on the let word. Let the little children let, come to me. Yeah, let the little children come <laughs> unto me and do not forbid them from such is the kingdom of heaven. But then he also, um, Paul says later, when I was a child... I thought as a child, act like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Mm -hmm. But then the idea of also, um, I think it was Paul again talking about um, feeding when you're young, feeding you with milk. But when you get older, you switch to solid food instead. Right. So this idea of there's this balance of the kingdom of heaven is of children, but then also we're called to be mature and wise. Mm -hmm. So it can't be like you were saying, like the difference of childlike and childish. I, I like that. They'll be childish, right? But there's some quality of a kid, of a child that you need to be like them, right? So, so do you think fairy fairy tales help us help us to kind of get at that? Yeah. Can I, uh, you know, give a one or two specific yeah, examples? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Um, so one example, and I, I don't think I talked about this in my paper, but I know I talked about it in my defense. Um, uh, the example of Peter Pan. Uh, Peter Pan. Contrasted, contrasted with Wendy Darling, the difference between them was that you know both at, at the beginning wanted to stay children for forever, um, but you know as Wendy Darling you know accompanied Peter Pan through Neverland throughout the story, she realized that yes he is childlike and she did admire that quality in him. He was also childish, and so the reason they part ways at the end of the story is she comes to understand the difference between being childlike, the difference between the childlike wonder, the childlike innocence, and those childish qualities, the, you know, throwing a tantrum when you don't get your way. Like, when she first, you know, expresses the idea of, you know, wanting to go home to her mother, Peter Pan, you know, just kind of throws a tantrum. It's like, all right, get out of here. Um, and so that that was kind of a childish response not a childlike response that was not a very virtuous admirable you know response to that he, he didn't want to talk it out he didn't want to reason with it he he was you know very angry you know get out of here like even i mean th th that was a childish response not a childlike response and then not necessarily the exact same thing but um i guess you know to kind of prepare for what um, I'm about to say. Um, here's a quote from C.S. Lewis uh, in his essay, Three Ways of Writing for Children. Um, 
Critics who treat adult as a term of approval instead of as merely a descriptive term cannot be adult themselves. To be concerned about being grown up, to admire the grown up because it is grown up, to blush at the suspicion of being childish, these are th mar things and are marks of childhood and adolescence. And in childhood and adolescence, they are, in moderation, healthy symptoms. Young things ought to want to grow. But to carry on into middle life or even into early manhood, this concern about being adult is a mark of really arrested development. When I was 10, I read fairy tales in secret and would have been ashamed if I had been found doing so. Now that I am 50, I read them openly. When I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the desire to be very grown up. Um, so, are you going to say something? Well, is he saying being an adult is bad? Um, yeah. So, um, I, th I, th I think, you know, trying to put it in as simple terms as possible, um, it, when you are an adult, um, like like we were talking about, you know, being an adult, you know, having the adult's brain and but also the child's heart. Um, but, you know, not not looking down on, you know, childhood be, now that you are an adult because you have to distinguish the childlike virtues from the disgusting, not disgusting, but, you know, the childish qualities <laughs> in a child. You know, oh, sometimes kids are disgusting. Yeah, sometimes they are disgusting. They get sticky. Um, <laughs> but, um... I feel like Atticus came in earlier. It is, the bottom of his feature is black with mud. He'd been running through the yard barefoot for I don't know how many hours. <laughs> but adults do that, too. Yeah. Yeah, that is true, I guess. But it's not as, not as common as little That's kids, true. I feel hey, like. Hey, Sydney or... does that, so... That's true. Um, That's true. <laughs> but, um, you know, Playing off what he said there, you you start to see why in the last battle, um, Susan Pavinci did not join um, Peter, Edmund, and Lucy, um, and Edmund and Polly and Diggory, um, and, and all all the other main characters throughout the Chronicles of Narnia. Why Susan Pavinci was not there to join in the afterlife at the end of the last battle, um, at, at at the end of the Chronicles, and a, a lot of people see that as you know Lewis being you know sexist because i think a reason given in the books is because she was a lot more concerned with makeup and you know lipstick or, and all that stuff and possibly that was you know just some poor word choices on lewis's <laughs> part um that he he was not saying that susan did not get into heaven because she was feminine what he was saying was she was more concerned with though because you know makeup is not you know seen as like a child thing we you know, most parents don't just let their you know six-year-old girls you know do makeup and lipstick and all that you know, par partially because they're not going to do it do it very well but also just because you know that's not <laughs> something that a six-year-old needs to be getting into um so S susan was a lot more concerned with parties and you know doing her makeup and all that and she she did not want anybody thinking that she believed in this what they would call a made-up world called Narnia, where she, you know she believed she was once she once reigned as a queen, and they they didn't want her. She, she did not want anybody to think that she believed that that ever happened. She did not want to associate herself with her siblings who did believe this. And so it's because Susan is never in the last battle. We never really see if she, there's even any if she actually remembers that or if she's just kind of blotted it all out and convinced herself that it never happened. But I think through, through reading the story, you can kind of see, she, I, th I think she's very aware that 
it was real, but she she does not want anybody to think that she thinks that. Um, any any of her adult friends, and you can even see that throughout the line, the witch and the wardrobe, and Prince Caspian, where you know she, she was always the more the most grown up of the group. She she was always trying to be the most rational and the, you know the most you know simple mind. You know, like this is how it is. It's facts and logic. Um, yeah. And even when you hear Edmund and Lucy talking about her in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you can kind of see she's already trying to disassociate herself from Narnia, and she's already getting into these parties and things. And then by the last battle, she's kind of just, she's not, she does not seem to be very connected with her siblings and her cousin and all their other friends yeah, anymore. I, it kind of made me think of the passage where it says, be in the world but not of it. Yeah. She's chosen to be in the world and of it at the same time. So wherever she is, she seems to want to kind of make sure that she fits into that group yeah. and is not concerned about, well, yeah, this is true. Well, I, I can't admit that that's true because then I'm socially vulnerable. So that, that's kind of how I had read that. In the um, puzzle piece that is Prudence, she has the piece of the adult brain, but she is rejecting the piece of the childlike wonder. Um. So real quick, we're kind of running out of time, sort of. Um, we, we didn't have one story we wanted to get to and kind of look at just a little bit before the end, um, but I did have I did have one final thing that I wanted to ask. So I've I've had a couple people recently um, over the past year or two, and I've heard online as well. Other people make the argument that I mean some of these stories are too dark for kids. I mean, you've got stories with like Cinderella people getting their eyes pecked out or feet mm-hmm. chopped off and like you you even said which I've heard a lot of people complain about people who make movies now based off of fairy tales like Disney they're afraid to put villains in there that are truly evil I mean you you pointed out with the Frozen movies which I'll leave my personal opinions out of this for a second but <laughs> the Frozen movies like there's no real villain in the movie that's ever really defined mm. And now some people I've heard say that's a good thing because, I mean, you don't want to traumatize the kid, give them something too scary. It might give them nightmares. But I don't know. What do you think about the idea of having bad villains? Because, I mean, even C.S. Lewis acknowledged he had nightmares as a child, but he was an advocate of tell these kids these scary fairy stories. I mean, why why is it important to have evil in these fairy stories? Um. Yeah, so the first thing you have to understand is that C.S. Lewis grew up, he, he had a lot of nightmares, but what he believes is that you cannot eradicate um, any fear at all th- th- by, by the means of fairy tales. And he also believed that fairy tales did not start, they were not the beginning of a fear, they merely brought that fear to mind. Um, if there was a fairy tale about a dragon, and then you have a nightmare about a dragon, it's not because you're just now discovering that you had a fear of a dragon. That that fear of a dragon basically exists with you as a person. But r- reading that fairy tale has just now... It's, the idea of a dragon is now floating around in your head, and so when you go to sleep, you, know, you have a dream about a dragon. But then also... Um, and this is a weird source, but it's just... It's such a good quote. Um... Uh, from it's from an episode of Criminal Minds. It's titled <laughs> "If the Shoe Fits." Huh. Um, I do not remember what season it was. There's like 15 seasons, so I cannot possibly even guess. <laughs> Good but, luck finding the book. Um, so, um, the the character Spencer Reed said, 
Um, most fairy tales in their original form were gruesome to the extreme. In Cinderella, these um, stepsisters had their feet mutilated to, to fit in, uh, in the shoe, and their eyes were eventually picked out by doves. Sleeping Beauty was raped while she was unconscious by the king. Hansel and Gretel were held captive by a half-blind cannibal. Soldiers were instructed to cut out Snow White's liver and lungs so that the queen could feast upon them. Um, he says, My point is, one could argue that the sanitized versions we have today are actually counterproductive to the original purpose of fairy tales so the children can safely confront their darkest fears. So when we think of fairy tales, especially in the modern sense, we think of all, you know, peace and love, Disney... Disney really pushes these ideas that you're perfect just the way you are. You can be whatever you want to be. Um, these very utopia-type type ideas. But you, when you read the original fairy tales, or not the original fairy tales, because you know, as we already talked about, Cinderella's been traced back a long time ago, but the popular versions by like the Brothers Grimm and stuff, I mean, those are very you know, dark, twisted stories. Um, and so the point was never really to have a perfect and you know, happy world there was always supposed to be some element of darkness in them hmm. uh, um sorry so, so it's more of a it's more of a chance for the kids already have these fears but the fairy story gives them a chance to face that fear and to deal with it in a way that's disconnected from themselves yes. and kind of settle it and then when we also think of courage um what we have to understand is that Courage does not mean you are not afraid. Um, when mm, St. Yeah. George goes and battles the dragon, it is not because he is not afraid. He is letting his courage outshine his fear. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, I, I think I used, like, I, I think I said, it, it wasn't, it wouldn't have been little more than smushing a fly on, on the wall if, if he wasn't afraid of the dragon. Really, the only impressive part was that the dragon, for some reason, did not eat him. W what is impressive is that he put his fears aside and he went out and he slayed the dragon. Yeah. Well, so we're running out of time. We were going to talk yeah. about a story. Uh, so I guess if you had like two and a half minutes to say something about the golden bird, <laughs> what would you say? Yes. So the golden bird is like my favorite fairy tale by the brothers Grimm. And I like it so much because it illustrates uh, this, I these ideas that I've been talking about this whole time. And, one of the ideas that I kind of had to skip over um, earlier was the idea that your protagonist is not always the hero. And even listening to some of y'all's uh, earlier podcasts, like, you know, talked about superheroes and stuff. Now, usually in the case of those movies, you know, your, your protagonist is going to be the super, um, the superhero and the, the hero. Mm -hmm. um, in the case of many fairy tales, namely The Golden Bird, the hero is not the protagonist the protagonist is the youngest son of the king um and he messes up over and over again the hero is the fox who very grace you know very kindly gives the son uh, the son of the king these these instructions over and over again on how to fix his mistakes and what he needs to do um in order to right his wrongs and to do everything um to in in, in order to achieve his happily ever after um, and so the fox in this case would be the Christ figure who, you know, swoops in to save this protagonist that is a flawed human being. And so he comes in, he 
forgives over and over again. He gives the instructions, and it is up to the king's son whether he is going to take this advice or not take this advice. And many, many times he does not take the advice, and he, he thinks he can find his own way, and inevitably he realizes, oh, wait, no, the fox has been right this whole time. And so he does what the fox says, and then he gets us happily ever after. Um, and then really, really quick, um, something I did not talk about was um, that the structure of a fairy tale echoes the course of life. So you've got your once upon a time, you're born, you come into the world with no real knowledge, um, and then the middle of the story is kind of where you've got your morals of you know virtue in there, and that's kind of when Satan tempts you, you know, right, um, you, you can take the right path or the wrong path, and then the ending, the happily ever after, would be heaven. So in the case of the golden bird, after he does, he follows out the fox's instructions and he gets his happily ever after, that is him making his way into heaven because he has now followed the instructions that the Christ figure of the story has given him. And so now he gets to enjoy the rewards of heaven. But then even the fox is transformed in the end. Yes. So once the fox completes his work, he's mm -hmm. transformed and he's ultimately recognized. Yes. So is that like Christ, Christ having been there, walked through with us and once his work is complete of redemption he's then further glorified yes and I, th I think that there's definitely something to be said about the fact that the Brothers Grimm um, George MacDonald Hans, Hans Christian Andersen and just these uh, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien these very well known authors of fairy tales and you know appreciators of fairy tales they were all Christians and so you have to start thinking alright so why are these Christians so you know involved in this genre and what are they seeing that we are not seeing hmm. wow that's interesting yeah this that was a great story i, I read it this afternoon it was one yeah. he, he recommended to us i i asked about cinderella and he said well, you need to read the golden bird so I, I went and read it and i realized i'd actually read it before i just forgotten but it, it's it's a very good one yeah so if you can find the golden bird by the brothers Grimm, read it it's yeah very good it's very long. It's it's not as short as you would expect. It's several pages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that brings us about to the end of our time, though. Yeah. Um, so we, we'll have a synopsis up again on the blog, kind of giving you. I guess this this one will probably be more more just notes, but also possibly pushing you other places to find other stories to read. Kind of hmm. hopefully. Take this and synthesize it. Go out and read other things as well. But if you if you want to read that or anything else we've put up, um, you can find us at thecaveescapeblog.blogspot.com. And there's also a feature on there that you can leave comments. Leave comments if you have any questions or anything, yes. or on Instagram or Facebook. I believe Spotify enables you to also ask questions. I think I'm not, so. I'm not I don't sure really know how that functions though. If you f figure out how that works, we do get notified. I got notified once on that, um, <laughs> so we can see that. Um, but also, if you have any questions, like topics you think we should delve into, we would yeah, welcome that as well. For sure. Um, anything else you need to add? Not that I can think of. Well, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week because we're back <laughs> to our regularly scheduled podcast. Oh, uh, thank you again, Avery, for coming on with us. Yes, yeah. thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That was very enjoyable. All righty, well, thank you for listening, and until next week, take care.